Good evening, I'm Amna Nawaz. Jeff Bennett is away. On the news hour tonight, the Senate passes a bipartisan bill for aid to Israel and Ukraine, but hardline immigration politics threaten its future in the House. Doctors sound the alarm about a cheap and easy to find supplement known as gas station heroin, part of a growing group of unregulated and potentially addictive products. And fresh off re-election, the president of El Salvador continues his gang crackdown, which has already fueled mass arrests and concerns about democracy. The challenge is helping people who have been subjected to the terror of gangs for decades process what might have been lost in exchange for that security. Welcome to the News Hour. A big day on Capitol Hill, where early this morning, U.S. Senators passed a $95 billion plan to fund Ukraine, Israel, and other foreign aid. And where tonight, the House of Representatives plans another attempt at impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Our Lisa Desjardins is there, and she joins me now. So, Lisa, it's fair to say just a few days ago, it wasn't even clear that this bill could get through the Senate. What happened? Right. There was a rare weekend session after that tumultuous week last week and after an overnight work that ended in a 6 a.m. vote this morning where overwhelmingly the Senate, in fact, did vote to pass this Ukraine and foreign aid bill. Let's quickly remind folks what's in it. It's about a $95 billion bill. The largest amount in there is for Ukraine, $60 billion. Then there's also money in here for Israel, $14 billion, just under $10 billion for humanitarian aid. That does include for civilians in Gaza. And there are sanctions and penalties for fentanyl for um, international operations and perhaps some countries if they're found to be complicit with fentanyl. Now, here's what happened. In the end, this was a matter of senators who were veteran senators feeling like there was a complete need to support Ukraine. Let's look at who voted for this today. The Republican senators, there were 22 of them. You can see, looking at those faces, that is a range, a full spectrum from very conservative to more in the middle for senators. Now, I want to look at this group a different way, another important way, the map of where these senators are from. Look at that. Senators supporting this Ukraine foreign aid bill come from from really kind of the middle of the country and the heart of the Republican uh, kind of party, as well as MAGA country, Trump country. Many of these are big Trump states. In the end, what we saw here, 70 votes Omna, for this bill. All of this, the culmination of Zelensky coming, personally pleading with senators, he was able to get enough, more than enough Republican votes in the Senate today. So, Lisa, the bill now moves to the House. How strong is the opposition to that bill there? And how are President Biden and other supporters of the plan taking all that on? There is very strong opposition by some Republicans for a variety of reasons here in the House. There is going to be quite a climb, and it will be an obstacle. Already the White House, President Biden, aware of this, took this on today. And he said that funding Ukraine is an existential matter, not just for Ukraine, but for the world. If we don't stop Putin's appetite for power and control in Ukraine, he won't limit himself just to Ukraine. And the cost for America and our allies and partners is going to rise. For Republicans in Congress who think they can oppose funding for Ukraine and not be held accountable, history is watching. Now, the opponents, however, some of them say that they want other things added to this bill. But those who oppose the Ukraine aid specifically say that they think this is a misplaced priority. Here's Senator Rand Paul speaking late last night. The more accurate title for this bill would be Ukraine first, America last, because they're prioritizing the border of Ukraine over the border of the United States. Now, here's where it gets even more interesting and difficult. Speaker Mike Johnson of the House has said today, and I've confirmed, that he will not bring up this Senate-passed bill, even though it got 70 votes, an overwhelming vote in the Senate. 
why he says it needs to have some kind of border elements in it. So that isn't really a critique of the Ukraine funding, Israel, any of it. He, again, is trying to bring in that border element. And a reminder, Omni, I don't have to tell you, it was House Republicans who originally said these bills must be linked, Ukraine and the border. But it was also Republicans who walked away from the compromise bill last week in the Senate. Now, here we are again with Republicans saying it has to be back in. A bit of whiplash here and, and a difficult position, I think, for Ukraine allies navigating here. Lisa, given all that, is there any way that we can know what to expect in the House on this bill? Let me go through the options. There are options here. The first one, as I mentioned, is that House Speaker Mike Johnson could bring this up for a vote. Let's rule that out. He has said he won't do that right now. Now, the next option is there could be what's called a discharge petition. If a majority of the House signs a petition, they could force a vote on this bill. And I am told the votes are there for that right now. However, it's a question of timing whether and when that could happen, because here's the other option. The House could actually float a different bill, perhaps some other compromise on the border. And tonight, Amna, I did speak to House Armed Services Chairman Mike Rogers, a Republican. He said that's what he wants to do. He wants to move away from the House version of border security and come up with a new compromise. Is there time for that? Ukraine allies say no. But that idea is putting a pause on the other mechanisms that could get this bill through the House. The votes are here. It's a question of how, if, and when this Senate bill moves. As we mentioned earlier, Lisa, the House Republicans are again tonight going to try to vote to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas. They tried and failed last week. What has changed since then? One thing has changed. Uh, Representative Steve Scalise of Louisiana, the number two in the House, is expected to attend. He was out because he's been receiving cancer treatment last week. His vote could make the difference and should make the difference for House Republicans in order to get just enough to pass this impeachment resolution. If there are no travel problems, we do expect the House to take that vote and move forward on impeachment tonight. Lisa Desjardins on Capitol Hill tonight. Lisa, thank you. You're welcome. In the day's other headlines, the Labor Department's latest look at the U.S. economy raises new questions about just how fast inflation is easing. Consumer prices in January were up 3.1 percent from a year ago, smaller than the annual increase in December. But month to month, prices rose three-tenths of a percent, and that was slightly more than in December. Analysts attribute much of it to rising costs of homes, rentals, and hotel rooms. On Wall Street, the inflation numbers raised fears that interest rates will stay higher for longer than expected. The Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 524 points, or 1.3 percent, to close at 38,272. The Nasdaq fell 1.8 percent, and the S&P 500 also dropped 1.3 percent. A winter storm disrupted schools, commutes, and flights across much of the Northeast today. Snow fell from New York City to Massachusetts, and parts of Pennsylvania got 15 inches. The storm also brought winds gusting to 60 miles an hour and coastal flooding in some areas. Many government offices and schools closed, and more than 1,000 flights were canceled. The heads of the CIA and Israel's spy agency discussed a possible ceasefire in Gaza today with the leaders of Egypt and Qatar. The session in Cairo came as Israel threatens an all-out ground assault on Rafah, where some 1.4 million Palestinians are sheltering. More of those refugees packed up and left today after shelling overnight. Israel said it's working on plans to move them, and U.S. officials insisted again that they be protected. Any credible plan that could be executable would have to take into account their physical movement, safe movement, as well as oh, um, uh, proper uh, substance for them, you know, food, water, medicine, access to, to health care. Also today, the State Department said it's investigating reports that Israeli forces killed a 17-year-old Palestinian-American in the West Bank on Saturday. Another Palestinian-American teen was killed in the West Bank last month. The Pentagon says Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has been released from the hospital and has resumed his duties. Austin was being treated for bladder complications from prostate cancer surgery. He had canceled a trip this week to meet with NATO ministers on Ukraine aid. 
Flight attendants rallied at major U.S. and British airports today in a push for higher wages. Pickets went up at 30 airports total in the day-long protest. Attendants argue that pilots have scored big labor deals, but cabin crews have gone unrewarded. A special congressional election in New York is being closely watched tonight as a possible bellwether for the fall elections. Democrat Tom Suozzi faces Republican Mazzy Pillup in a contest with a heavy focus on the influx of migrants. The winner replaces Republican George Santos, who was expelled from the House in December over charges of corruption and stealing campaign cash. In New Orleans, today was Mardi Gras, or Fat Tuesday, the grand finale of carnival season. All day long, floats paraded through the French Quarter and down major thoroughfares. As always, the centuries-old tradition featured elaborate costumes, live music, and colorful bead chains. And the reconstruction of Paris's famed Notre Dame Cathedral has reached a new milestone. Scaffolding is being removed from the top of the medieval landmark for the first time since a devastating fire in 2019. It reveals a new spire with a golden rooster and cross. The cathedral is expected to reopen in December. Still to come on the news hour, AI-generated misinformation threatens to endanger election integrity. Privacy concerns lead so-called momfluencers to stop showing their kids on social media. Actor Jeffrey Wright discusses his Oscar-nominated role in the film American Fiction, plus much more. This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. From robocalls to deep fakes, artificial intelligence is already playing a role in the 2024 election. Today, The Washington Post and Axios reported a group of leading tech companies, including Meta, Google and TikTok, committed to limiting misleading AI content on their platforms. Laura Brown lopez has been covering what this means for the upcoming election and joins me now. So, Laura, how have we seen AI already playing a role in the election? Last week, Amna, the federal... Uh, Communications Commission ruled that robocalls using AI generative content are illegal. So that comes, Amna, after the New Hampshire Attorney General launched an investigation into robocalls that used AI to impersonate President Joe Biden's voice uh, leading up to the New Hampshire primary there. And that investigation so far traced those robocalls back to a Texas company called LifeCorp, but that investigation is still ongoing. And last year, we saw a number of ads using AI-generative content, including the RNC, the Republican National Committee, putting out a Beat Joe Biden ad that used AI-generative imagery and video to, to depict a dystopian future under a second Biden term. We also saw uh, Ron DeSantis's, uh, the Super PAC aligned with Ron DeSantis's campaign, using AI to mimic Donald Trump's voice and vice versa. Donald Trump's campaign putting out video uh, using AI that impersonated Ron DeSantis's voice. Uh, so you're seeing a suite of AI being used, particularly by Republicans. And in preparation for this, the Biden campaign told me that they've assembled attorneys as well as legal academics to try to be prepared to combat more AI-generative content. But what are the concerns here when it comes to the election? I mean, what, what do experts tell you about how AI is a potential threat to democracy? So this is a change in degree. And it's not that AI hasn't been used before in past elections, but it's that AI generative um, tools are now more widely available and they're much more sophisticated. So the AI threats in 2024 include things like robocalls that can clone a voice, phishing emails that replicate official templates, increasingly realistic deepfake video and photography, and then spoof accounts impersonating officials, offices, and news outlets. So the point, Amna, is that unlike 2016, AI is now faster cheaper, uh, easier to make because of the widely available generative AI tools. And I spoke to Katie Reisner, who's the senior counsel at States United Democracy, a nonpartisan group focused on election security, and she summed up the danger to the election process. Election officials are already doing their jobs in such an elevated threat environment. They are facing harassment, threats of physical violence, disruptions to their administration of elections. They're having trouble recruiting sufficient staff and poll workers. And ultimately, they don't have enough resources. So 
adding artificial intelligence to this mix is potentially going to make these election officials' jobs even more difficult. It's like pouring accelerant on this already very flammable substance. So one example, Amna, is that you may remember that in the aftermath of 2020, 2022, there were Republicans and people circulating uh, debunked video, but video of what they called poll workers cheating or throwing away ballots. And so what the what AI gives bad actors the ability to do is to recirculate that video, manipulate it, change it to make it look real. So those kinds of videos and the emails, the images, the robocalls you mentioned, are they being targeted at certain groups? I mean, who is most at risk when it comes to being potentially impacted by AI in an election year? The new power of AI allows bad actors to target specific groups. And so in 2020, minority communities were targeted with robocalls that discourage them from voting. But now, because AI generative tools are much more sophisticated, it allows creators to tailor content specifically to certain communities and make emails and calls just much more convincing. Well, Meta announced recently they're going to be flagging images and um, AI-generated content there. But more broadly, is there enough being done just to safeguard against this kind of content? So even though those companies, as you said, Amna, are deciding to label the content, they aren't outright banning it. And notably, X, formerly Twitter, has not even agreed to label uh, AI-generative content that might be fake. Uh, and so I spoke to experts like Lawrence Nor the director of elections and democracy at Brennan Center for Justice. And he told me that labeling AI imagery and video is a good first step, but that ultimately it's all on the companies to be the gatekeepers and to be able to protect democracy. They, I think, have the responsibility not only to ensure that um, to the extent possible that anything that is generated by AI is labeled uh, for the public, but to increase their trust and safety teams uh, to be on the lookout for um, coordinated bot activity that might be uh, disinformation campaigns, to be on the lookout for fake news sites, uh, and to be taking them down when they find them. Uh, and I'd really like to see them uh, take as much responsibility for our democracy and for the integrity of our democracy. So again, policing is all on the tech companies right now because there is no federal legislation mandating tech companies do this. They have to do it of their own accord. And also there's no federal legislation banning the use of AI content in political ads. And of course, even if there were, that doesn't stop foreign actors from using it. Laura, what about people themselves who are seeing this content? What can they do to stay vigilant and not get fooled? This technology is very confusing for a lot of people, and many people may not really understand even the labeling that companies are saying they will put on AI generative content. Labeling is not always easy to even see on an ad or on videos or on photographs, but advice that experts give is to trust with uh, known sources. So if you see something that you think might be fake floating around on the internet or on social media or from, from an influencer, go to a known news outlet. Also, of course, if it's a question about voting, then go to your local, state, county uh, election official websites. Great advice. Important information. Laura Brill-Lopez, thank you so much. Thank you. The Food and Drug Administration has issued warnings about a potentially addictive dietary supplement that's widely available in the U.S. Ali Rogan has the latest. The FDA is asking Americans not to purchase or use any products from the supplemental brand Neptune's Fix. It contains a substance called Tianeptine. Some countries have approved the drug to treat depression and anxiety. It's unapproved in the U.S., but readily available on store shelves and online. It's been nicknamed gas station heroin, and it can be highly addictive. An uptick in use has led the FDA to issue several warnings about Tianeptine and its potential side effects, including seizures, loss of consciousness, and death. Dr. Peter Cohen is an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and joins me now. Thank you so much, Dr. Cohen. Can you explain exactly what Tianeptine is? Sure, Allie. Tianeptine is a uh, pharmaceutical drug uh, originally produced in, in Europe as an antidepressant. Unfortunately, at higher levels, it can be addictive. And uh, for that reason, it's not gotten widespread use. It has never been approved for use for any medical reason in the United States. 
if it has not been approved for use, how is it that it can be sold in the United States? So what we see as a common and uh, sadly tragic pattern is that many companies take foreign drugs and introduce them directly to consumers in the United States by selling them as if they are dietary supplements. And they just appear on the market and start selling them to consumers. Mm. Uh, we spoke earlier to two health professionals who have seen patients who have uh, been using TNFTN, and I want to play some of what they told us. These patients definitely have increased heart rates, they're very agitated, um, and they will admit that they use a lot of the product. So in other words, that they're using it very routinely, that they've built up such a high tolerance to it and a craving for it that um, that they'll go to great lengths to get it. The presentation of the withdrawal is going to be very similar to somebody who would potentially be going through oxycodone withdrawal, um, heroin withdrawal. We were putting a fair number of people actually in our intensive care units, and we had to put them in there just because they were becoming so agitated, uh, so confused. Um, there was concerns for heart problems, concerns for uh, you know people having seizures. And so while some people, like with many withdrawal patterns, may just feel a little bit uncomfortable, a uh, fair number of people get very, very ill and require very close monitoring with it. You heard that last doctor say a fair number of people that he's seeing. Uh, do we have a sense of just how big this problem is with, with this substance? Yeah, it, it's really ticked up over the last um, decade. So back before 2015, we had never heard of TNFTN here. And uh, poison control calls, reports to the FDA, very serious ones like that were described from seizures, to uh, uh, stopping breathing to the point of intubation and deaths have all been reported, and they're coming in more frequently. Uh, the FDA has issued several warnings over the past six years, uh, and we should also note here that Nep uh, Neptune's Fix has agreed to a voluntary recall. But is are warnings all that the FDA can do? Why are they? Why are their hands seemingly so tied? Right. So there's two problems here. One is how it got on the market in the first place, and that's because there's no need for companies to vet products that they sell as dietary supplements with the FDA before they're being sold. That's a major problem and would require a change to the law. But there's a second major problem here, which is that the FDA has been aware of TNFTN being imported into the United States since 2015. That's been nine years. And like you mentioned, it was in 2018 when they first warned about TNFTN. So the fact that it's been uh, many years since the FDA was aware of the risk and has done nothing other than issue uh, warning to consumers and to the company is, uh, frankly, m embarrassing as they're um, neglecting their responsibility to protect the public from dangerous dietary supplements. Does this represent negligence on the part of the FDA, or is this simply how the regulatory framework it has been constructed and has existed for so long? So the fact that TNFTN is sold in the United States in the first place back in 2018 there's no negligence on the FDA's part. That's how the situation is structured, a regulatory framework structured. However, the fact that it's still sold today and that people are still dying and ending up in intensive care units due to TNFTN falls completely on, uh, on the FDA not doing their part, ensuring that the dangerous supplements are removed from the marketplace. Several states have already taken the steps of banning TNFTN. Do we expect other states to go in that direction? Unfortunately, with the FDA not moving definitively as they need to, and they could, the uh, states are left to fend for themselves, to protect their, their own citizens against dangerous dietary supplements such as TNFTN. So I would expect more states to move aggressively against these products. Is there a role that Congress could play in addressing this? So Congress could have two very impactful roles. Number one, they could ask the FDA to enforce the law. And that is when there's dangerous dietary supplements that they're off, they're removed from store shelves and the FDA uses all their enforcement act, uh, uh, potential, including mandatory recalls to do that job. The second thing they, they would need to do though, if we need to, if we're going to protect consumers from the next TNFTN down the road, is reform the law so that the FDA can at least ensure that products are introduced into the United States dietary supplements are not foreign dangerous drugs.
There are other dietary supplements out there uh, that also are not uh, regulated by the FDA or approved. Uh, Kratom, Phenibut among, among them. Uh, what are your concerns about those substances? Right. So Kratom and Phenibut are two other drugs that are sold as dietary supplements but shouldn't be. And the FDA is not doing enough to get those products off store shelves. We've actually done a study of Phenibut where we looked at what happened to brands of Phenibut before and after FDA warnings. Well, we found that dosages of the Phenibut actually increased in the products after FDA warnings. So the FDA's actions are inadequate to date, and they need to do a lot more because it's not just these three products, uh, Tianeptine, Kratom, Phenibut, but more than a dozen other foreign drugs that are being sold currently as dietary supplements in the United States. Dr. Peter Cohen, Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Ali. Last week, El Salvador's President Nayib Bukele was officially re-elected in a landslide win. Bukele first came into power in 2019, and for nearly two years, he's overseen a vast and brutal crackdown on gangs, transforming the nation from one of the deadliest in the world to one of the safest in Latin America. But that peace has come at a cost. Thousands of innocent people jailed, and critics say an undermined democracy. I traveled with producer Teresa Sebrián Aranda to two cities north of the capital of San Salvador to file this report. For two years, Patricia has prayed for her partner's return. Victor was one of the more than 75,000 people imprisoned in El Salvador's war on gangs. I don't know anything about him, and that's what hurts the most, because we were a very united family. His absence is felt in every room and at every meal. In 2022, Victor, whose identity we're protecting, and Patricia's son, Rodrigo, were arrested. They say without evidence for alleged gang ties. Rodrigo was just 16 years old. What happened in prison? They beat me. When I had a stomach ache, a headache, instead of giving me medicine, they would take us all out and beat us. He says about 70 people shared a single cell, but only 10 or so were gang members. They were the ones who controlled the cell. They would ask for medicine, and they got it. And to those who weren't anything, they would treat us badly. Those from the neighboring cell would urinate on us, and the police wouldn't say anything. His stepfather, Victor, remains in prison. Police said he had a criminal record for petty crime decades ago, but Patricia denies any gang ties. She showed us documents she's filed for his release, dismissed by the court. So Patricia has been gathering as many character testimonies, letters of recommendation from her church, from his employer, where he worked for 22 years. She's been submitting all of this to the courts, but so far they've made no difference. Victor was swept up as part of President Nayib Bukele's crackdown on the gangs that have terrorized El Salvador. For more than two decades, warring factions of the MS-13 and 18th Street gangs killed and extorted civilians with impunity, turning El Salvador into the murder capital of the world. Nelson Rauda is the digital editor of El Faro, an acclaimed national investigative newspaper. For the people who live on their gang control communities for the people who use public transportation, for the people who maybe just was in the wrong place in the wrong time. It was unbearable. Nayib Bukele swept into power in 2019. In his first year in office, the murder rate dropped by half. But in March of 2022, a gang killing spree, 87 people dead in one weekend. Bukele responded with an iron fist. He deployed the military, declared a state of exception limiting some rights, and empowered police to arrest without a warrant. This police officer, whose identity we're protecting, said officers were issued arrest quotas. At one point, five arrests a day. Given that we had arrest goals, when we no longer found gang members, we began arresting people who had nothing to do with gangs. And what happens to those people after you arrest them? They are detained and we charge them with the crime of unlawful association. A lot of innocent people are still in prison, and we have participated in that because we thought they'd be released soon, and that has not been the case. 
the majority of them, upon being detained, get basically disappeared into the, into the prison system. Family members don't know if they're alive, don't know where they are, aren't able to contact them. Noah Bullock is the executive director of Cristosal, a human rights group based in El Salvador. They've documented thousands of arbitrary arrests during that state of exception, as well as abuse and death inside prisons. We spoke during his recent visit to Washington. For all those people who are detained, what's the recourse like for their families or loved ones? What can people do? Very little. What is lost in terms of rights and freedoms for Salvadorans in the state of exception uh, is the guarantee uh, to be able to have a fair trial, uh, to be able to uh, defend themselves uh, against, against these types of charges. Um, and, and for many families, uh, it's, it becomes a reign of terror. That's what the, the Catholic bishop in El Salvador called it. Muy diferente antes. In San Martin, an hour outside of San Salvador, Mauricio Villanova tours us around streets once too dangerous to walk. He's mayor of neighboring San Jose Guayabal. Muertos, rentas. Dead people, extortion, territories controlled by the gangs. There was no freedom here, not even for residents. There was a state within a state. What used to be one of the deadliest areas in the country is now safe enough for children to play. Just to give you a sense of how dramatically life has changed here, people tell us this road used to be essentially a dividing line. That community was controlled by the MS-13 gang, this community controlled by the 18th Street gang, and for some, crossing would mean a death sentence. Villanova, who some gang leaders still want dead, carries a weapon wherever he goes. But Bukele's policies, he says, have been transformative. But what about the innocent people who are rounded up and held as part of the state of exception, but are completely innocent. Yes, of those detained here are some people who have been released already. I have faith in God that those who do not fear and will be judged will be free. The government has so far released 7,000 people, but thousands of families say their innocent loved ones are still held. Maribel Amaya last saw her son, Jorge Luis, a few blocks away from her vegetable stand outside of San Salvador. Her son had no criminal record. She says he was arrested to fill a police quota. Pero una mamá que ahí. Another mother who was there and whose son was also arrested that day. Before she left the police station, she heard police saying, I need one more. And that one more was my son. No visitors are allowed at the Mariona prison where he's held. But once a month, Maribel makes the trip to drop off food and clothes he won't get inside. Each package costs almost $100, about a third of her monthly income. After a friend sent her this photo of a much thinner Jorge Luis in a hospital being treated for malnutrition, she says she'll spare no expense. I can wait, but my son cannot anymore. I don't understand how they can sleep at night with all these injustices they are creating. I will never stay silent. Why? Because I don't want a funeral home to call me one day and tell me that my son is in a morgue. Of the tens of thousands arrested, the majority have not yet faced trial. A new law allows for mass trials of up to 900 people at a time. Gustavo Villatoro is El Salvador's Minister of Justice and Public Security. We do guarantee that all these people will face justice, a judge decision on whether they are guilty or innocent. We are now in the transitional process and we will soon begin the accusations. Critics say President Bukele's grip on power has only tightened. In his first term, Bukele removed the attorney general and replaced top judges on the Supreme Court, who then reinterpreted the Constitution, allowing Bukele to run for a second consecutive term. The government has also targeted critics, including human rights groups and journalists. We have been severely attacked. We have gotten death threats. The uh, Inter-American hum Commission of Human Rights thinks that our lives and our jobs are in danger in El Salvador. But Salvadorans, now free of gang control, support Bukele. Just last week, he won re-election with nearly 83% of the vote. Pasamos de ser el país más inseguro. We literally went from being the most dangerous country in the world to being the most secure in all the Western Hemisphere. The security results are felt by everyone. 
um, I, I think the, it, the, the challenge is though, uh, is helping people who have been subjected to the terror of gangs for decades uh, process what, it might, what might have been lost in exchange for that security. What does a second term under Bukele mean for democracy in El Salvador? The end of it. What would you call a system where one person calls all the shots, where there's no separation of powers? After February 4th, you would, you would find it really hard to call it a democracy. Today, the streets of El Salvador are largely quiet and peaceful, but many worry peace at this cost may not prevail for long. On platforms like TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube, so-called momfluencers share parenting tips and candid moments raising their kiddos. It's part of a multi-billion dollar online influencing industry, and given its focus on kids, raises questions about privacy and consent. Stephanie Sai reports on a trend among some of those content creators to avoid showing their kids. We're getting ready for day one of potty training my two-year-old. She's 25 months. and has On TikTok, Deja Smith has built a following by posting about her life as a stay-at-home mother of a toddler. I'm also a first-time mom and don't know what the hell I'm doing. I'm just a regular mom, middle class, you know, just uh, living kind of like a boring life every day. So people, people love that. But one thing you won't see in her videos, at least not anymore, is her daughter's face a decision she made about a year into being a content creator. I was getting a lot of interaction under my videos that were just specifically uh, pertaining to my daughter. I always wanted to base my content around me. Um, that's my whole point of, of it's centered around me, you know. Um, so when people are starting to center it around my daughter, it, that's when it got uncomfortable for me. Smith scrubbed her social media of her daughter's face, even making content about the challenge of keeping a toddler out of her videos. Back up. Back up. Smith is part of a growing trend among so-called momfluencers, choosing to not show their kids in their content. When I first started doing it, like 12 people were seeing my videos. Things change when you gain more traction. Content creator Menzi doesn't use her last name publicly, part of a strategy to protect her kid's identity. She's built up a following making TikToks on the importance of emotional validation, including where she embodies kids' perspectives. Knock it off, I can't deal with this today. I can't either, obviously. It is easier to show kids. It's easy to play on that parasocial relationship when kids feel, when other people feel bonded to your kid and they feel like they know your kid, they become that much more of a, that much more invested in your life. Menzi says her decision to not show her child is largely because he doesn't have a say. It's hard to think about it because we didn't have the internet when we were young, but if all of my childhood pictures and videos were just out for anyone to see, and I didn't realize it for the longest time, and then all of a sudden I did realize that that would not go over well with me and my parents. I know that's how I would feel, and so I don't feel comfortable doing it to him. You can pick out anything from the closet here that you want. Brittany Balin has built a large audience on YouTube over more than a decade and made content creation her full-time job. My channel has evolved with me. And in the motherhood sphere, it was very much, there was a lot of great information, but it was showing the highlights and, and the positive moments. And of course there is that, but I felt like more of just the real and the raw needed to be shared to help these moms not feel alone. Last August, Balin announced to her more than half million subscribers that she would no longer show her three-year-old daughter in her videos. I hope that you stay with me and a part of my channel. And if you don't, that's okay. Because the only opinion that really matters to me is that of my daughter. One thing that really kind of triggered something was meeting another mother at a kid's class and her instead of coming to me first, meeting my daughter, saying her name, knowing things about her. And, you know, there was no ill intent from the mother. It just made me realize that in the wrong hands, this information could be used in a very sinister fashion. 
Balin says that the response has been overwhelmingly positive and that it has not affected her income. But she's also made the decision to leave her old videos with her kiddo up for now. Once something is up, it, it lives forever. Whether you're a content creator or you're just posting to Facebook, and maybe I'll change my mind one day as a mother, as an adult, you are always learning and growing and evolving. But as of right now, the content is still live. Despite the trend toward removing kids from some momfluencer content, many children's lives are on display on the Internet. And some states are responding with new laws. Last year, Illinois passed a first-of-its-kind law requiring parents to set aside a portion of earnings from social media content that features their kids for their kids. This year, at least seven other states have introduced similar legislation. Fortessa Latifi is a features reporter for Teen Vogue, who has been covering all of this and joins me now. Fortessa, it's good to have you on the NewsHour. I just read a piece that you wrote titled, The Kids Who Had Their Childhoods Made Into Content. It's about the impacts that living one's life on social media has had on some kids, now adults. Tell me some of the stories you uncovered. Yeah, it was really interesting. So I talked to a young woman who has grown up on a YouTube channel. She first went viral when she was a toddler. And by the time she was in elementary school, her parents had quit their full-time jobs because YouTube was the family business. And she told me, there's nothing my parents can do now to take back the amount of work I had to put in. And that was so striking to me. How pervasive is hearing stories like that? I mean, based on your reporting, are you getting the sense that there's like a whole generation of kids who are being exploited online by their parents. There is a whole generation of kids that this is affecting, and we're just seeing those kids reach adulthood now and start to tell their stories. We just heard from some momfluencers who have decided voluntarily to remove their kids' faces from their content. What is driving those moms to make that decision, and are they in the minority? It's just this cultural conversation that's happening around child privacy and what kids consent to and what they can't consent to online. And so do we want to be creating these really detailed online footprints for our kids? People are starting to ask that question. And it's interesting because I would say that the majority of parent influencers still do show their kids online, but we've had some really big creators with millions of followers who have made the decision to take their kids offline. And it's interesting because... A year or so ago, you would never question whether an influencer was going to show their kid online, but now it is a question. And I think even knowing that it's not a given shows how much the culture has changed just in the last year. Do you have any sense of how their followers uh, feel about them taking their kids' faces offline? I mean, you heard one mother say that, you know, viewers of the content kind of relate to seeing the kid. Do those moms sort of suffer monetarily when they make that decision? They do, definitely, because people want to see their kids. They've gotten attached to the kids. They are interested in seeing them. And so when they don't show them anymore, their views may go down. They may get less branded content, less sponsored content deals. And so that is difficult. And one thing that I've talked to some several mom influencers about who have told me that people's reaction to them taking their kids offline made them sure that they were doing the right thing. So people would say, I miss them so much. Their, their TikTok aunts and uncles miss them. We love them. We just want to see them. How could you take them from us? And the, the intensity of that reaction proved to the parents that they had done the right thing. I love that you write in your article that it's maternal instinct um, that made these momfluencers make that decision. There was a law last year passed in Illinois. It became the first to require that money made from these videos would be set aside for kids that are featured in them, like in a trust fund. What are the impacts of that law and how much traction are you seeing for legal protections for children's, children of influencers elsewhere? Well, it's a huge deal because, like you said, Illinois made history with that bill and with that law. It was the first law in the entire country to protect the monetary gains of child influencers. So that's a really big deal because we know that often the first one is the most difficult to pass. And now we've seen this kind of like mirror happening where now there are seven other states that have introduced laws that would either mirror Illinois or even take it further and have privacy protections um, with what is called the right to be forgotten. But it's really fascinating because just last year, 
we passed the very first law in the country, and now there are seven other states that are working to become the second. And so you do see this kind of momentum that came after the Illinois law that just wasn't there before. Do you think that the tide is really turning toward more protections for kids and teens online? I mean, a lot of child advocates would say a three-year-old simply can't consent to being put out publicly on social media, even if it's by their parents. I do think the tide is changing, and I think you can see that even in the comments of influencers who still show their kids. Like, people, half of the comments are positive, but half of the comments are negative now, which is really a huge change. I mean, last year, no one was commenting to these influencers that they were exploiting their children or are you saving money for the kids or how does this work? And now you see it and it's half of their comments are asking them to address this kind of elephant in the room. Um, so this controversy is really picking up speed. For Tessa Latifi, a features reporter for Teen Vogue, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Jeffrey Wright has had one of the most varied and distinguished acting careers of recent decades. While best known in supporting roles, he's now received his first Oscar nomination as the lead in American fiction, a film itself nominated for Best Picture. Jeffrey Brown spoke with him for our arts and culture series, Canvas. Why are these books here? I'm not sure. I would imagine that this author, Ellison, is black. That's me, Ellison. In American fiction, Jeffrey Wright plays Thelonious Ellison, known as Monk, a black writer who finds himself rejected by publishers because his novels aren't black enough. Enough, that is, for a culture demanding just one kind of black story. I'm just going to put them back after you leave. Don't you dare, Ned. It's been, in some ways, uh, energizing. For the actor who brought us to his favorite neighborhood cafe, Brooklyn Moon, in Brooklyn's Fort Greene section, the film presented a new kind of role, one that often hits close to home. I usually have to uh, reshape myself to find a character. I like working that way. I like to create characters, you know, a different uh, man from one film to another. It allows me to be... Um, useful in many, across many different genres. And get outside yourself. Get outside myself. And I, I like, you know, playing with, with, with the mask. Uh, so, no, this was a, this was a unique one. Yeah. <laughs> Looks like you could use a scrub. No, I'm clean. Light starred in the 1996 film Basquiat. But he's perhaps made his biggest mark through his brilliant, almost chameleon-like character roles. I live in America, Lewis. I don't have to love it. In dramas such as Angels in America, Boardwalk Empire, and Westworld. Big blockbusters including Hunger Games and three Bond films. And the quirky world of Wes Anderson in Asteroid City. I've had people say, I didn't even realize that was you in the two movies I watched last week. I didn't realize you, you know, I didn't recognize you from one to the other. I like that. You do like that? Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, I like to... I like to create, you know, these characters. So much goes on in your face. Well, I think that the most forceful tool um, when working on film is the two eyes uh, and, you know, the window. So I do try to use those with a certain, like, kind of subtle intensity. You are thinking about that in some sense, or are you? Or you... No, I'm just uh, expressing story through the eyes. Yo, Sharonda, where you be going in a hurry like that? If and you gots to know, I's going to the pharmacy. In the eyes of Monk, an upper-middle-class writer from a family of doctors, bafflement, frustration, grief. Why am I the last to know? Because you love them too much. American fiction directed by first-time director Coor Jefferson, who adapted it from Percival Everett's novel Erasure, is partly a send-up of today's publishing industry. Facing more rejection, Monk writes an over-the-top street version of Black Life using a pseudonym. To his shock, publishers love it. He's finally got a bestseller, except it's not a work he stands by. And it's not technically by him. We love it. What? It is very, uh, black. Yes, that's it. This I'm film is uh, certainly, at least partly, 
looking at the cliches of black life as, as shown in popular culture, right? Did that resonate with you? Oh yeah, certainly. And I don't think it's restricted to the publishing world or to you know, the world of, uh, of film. I think it's across our culture that uh, there's preconceptions or misrepresentations of, of who we are as individuals. I don't think it's necessarily confined to the black experience either, this idea of not being seen. Um, I certainly understand the pressures that the character uh, feels. I don't think that I necessarily share his frustration and rage. I think maybe because of the way I work, I've been able to, you know, to work my way around some of those obstacles that have been put in my way. I can't complain about my career. That resistance that he's up against, that yeah. you're playing, you know that. Yeah. But you haven't experienced it quite as no, much. No, I've experienced it, but I don't know. Maybe I've outsmarted it. Outsmarted it? Yeah. It's not impossible to do. You know, well, how did you how did you do it? Just better than that. Just by being better than the resistance to who I am as an artist. I've always thought that if if I was good at what I did and I worked hard at it, that everything else would flow from that. When I was younger as an actor, I didn't want to make money. I just wanted to You didn't want to make money. No, it wasn't an interest of mine. Yeah. I wanted to pay my rent, but it wasn't, you know, I wasn't doing it to pursue, you know, a lot of money. I wanted to be good at what I had chosen to do. I wanted to be a good actor. And I figured everything else would take care of itself. Wright cites the example of other actors who came before him, some still active today, including Leslie Uggams, who in American fiction plays his aging mother with increasing signs of dementia. <laughs> you look fat. Uh, I know. In fact, it's the family relationships in the film that most resonated for Wright. Books change people's lives. His own mother, a lawyer who worked for the federal government, had died just a year before filming began. And a beloved aunt had come to live with him and his family. And so I had kids and, you know, trying to make sure that she was well. The pandemic rushed in and, yeah, I was feeling pressure from a lot of sides. And, you know, you kind of, as the character in the in the film realizes uh, that uh, kind of uh, youthful, uh, 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 blissful delusion that as you get older, life will become easier. Uh, yeah, I was disabused of. Not happening, huh? No, yeah. no, that, that went away. Mr. Wright, Jeffrey. For now, at least, there's a different kind of swirl in Jeffrey Wright's life as he's feted and honored for his latest role. Is this kind of recognition still important to you? Yeah, I think it's important when your peers and colleagues say, well done. When they show appreciation for the work, and in this case for the film, uh, in, in such, a, such a generous way, yeah, yeah, that, that has meaning. The thing that I like, that I've grown to appreciate about working on film is my responsibility when the camera rolls. How do you define that responsibility? It's to fill up the frame with whatever, whatever aspect of the story I'm responsible for. But that represents everyone's work. It represents the electrician's work, the gaffers, the grips, the people who work in the administrative office. It's all about what's happening in the frame at any given moment. And when it's my responsibility to be that in that place, I like it. But I like that I'm a part of a larger whole. And that's my, my gig, is, to, is to, uh, to tell the story. Jeffrey Wright, congratulations and thanks again. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you for having me. And thank you for coming to the neighborhood. It's a great conversation. And that is the NewsHour for tonight. I'm Amna Nawaz. On behalf of the entire NewsHour team, thank you for joining us.